0: If you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter nine, I think I've said uh, many times before that you know whichever book I'm, I'm teaching through or studying through at the time is my favourite book, uh, and, and it always seems to be. And at the moment, I'm really enjoying this uh, this study in Hebrews. Um, the, the focus on Jesus is just just wonderful. Uh, and I know every book of the Bible, in a sense, points to Jesus, but there's so much here uh, that the writer is encouraging his hearers to. To lay aside everything else, and that Jesus has to be that, that number one, that focus, and so we 're going to go on moving on from where we were uh, last week again, just a quick recap we 've seen already how the uh, the author to the, or this book, who again i 've said many times, but I, uh, I firmly believe it 's paul there 's no doctrinal issue there, but you know just just it makes a lot of sense because of the things he writes, the way it 's written but um, the first chapter, just presents Jesus as the express image of God the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity. Um, Jesus is the one who reveals, in a sense, who God the Father is to us. And of course, we know a lot, and Romans tell us, that we, we know of God's existence simply through creation. We, we look at the world around us. It, it, you know, funny enough, Marla's doing a bit of homework at the moment on, on had to, to choose a famous scientist and write a bit about it, so she chose Isaac Newton. Um, And one of the comments that Isaac Newton wrote, I'm sure many of you are aware, he was a very uh, serious Christian. He wrote more on the Bible and commentaries um, about the Bible than he did on science. Uh, He he absolutely loved God and loved the Word of God. And He made the comment that, you know, anybody who thinks will believe in the Bible, believe the Bible and believe God. People who don't think won't. Uh, and I love that because, you know, as we look at the world, as we look at nature, we look at creation, you know, there has to be a God. There's no other uh, satisfactory answer to that question. Uh, we see design everywhere we go. And even this recent virus thing that's going on, the coronavirus, you know, it just shows how fragile life is. But behind it all... There's still this design. There's still this intelligence that this couldn't have come about by random processes. And you know, Paul in Romans makes it very clear. That Just simply creation proves that, that God's there. But to know who that God is, to understand God, well, we need Jesus. Leon sent me a great little uh, email with some thoughts and comments he'd been writing this week. Um, just speaking about, or just just kind of, just mulling over some of the ideas, but the, the, about Jesus and that actually by looking at Jesus, I mean just drawing from the quotes from from John's Gospel. But you know, when we look at Jesus, we see God, and that's why it's important to understand who Jesus is and and have our focus on Him. So the opening chapter uh, again addresses that issue and then goes on to show, show that Jesus is greater and better than the angels. And of course, for the Jews and Judaism, angels were were highly uh, regarded. Um, because of the, the ministry they've had to the nation. And quite rightly so, but Jesus is greater and better than that. Jesus comes and brings a better message, a more complete message. And then we go on and we look at uh, the law and the fact that Jesus is greater and better than the law, that Jesus is greater and better than Moses. I mean, Moses effectively led the people out of bondage, out of slavery, and there's a beautiful type and a shadow but that was only in a sense in the physical. Jesus does that in the spiritual. And we'll be exploring that a little bit more in this, this uh, uh, chapter this, this morning. You know, and, and what Moses accomplished naturally by delivering, physically delivering the children of Israel, Jesus has done so by delivering us from the slavery and the bondage of sin. Uh, and we have this this freedom in him. Uh, again, the same challenge as presented in chapter three that a number of the, the Jews, the Israelites, didn't inherit the promises or the, the 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 inheritance that they could have done. They didn't move into the promised land because they doubted God. And I'm going to say this again. I've said it so many times, and hopefully, you're kind of this is sinking in. But it's really struck me that the reason God did not allow the children of Israel into the promised land—that that generation that died off in the wilderness—was simply because of a lack of trust in God. It wasn't because of the idolatry with the golden calf. It wasn't because uh, they're lusting after flesh. You remember the quail got blown in where they got fed up with the manna and God provided them quail and they became sick of that. You know, they, 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 all those kind of things. You know, all the, the rebellion against Moses. They're, they're blaming Moses they were going to die. And, uh, and then, of course, God provides water at Rephidim and all these other things we see. But God doesn't say because you were angry, because you were murmuring, because of idolatry or lust or any of those things, they weren't the reasons that they weren't allowed into the promised land. The reason they were not allowed in was simply because they didn't trust God. And that is a slur on God's character. Because when you see what God had already done for them, you know, it really is just, well, I'm going to quote that quote a number of times I've said before from Oswald Chambers. He says, if God is the God we know him to be when we're closest to him, what an impertinence worry is. And it's true. You know, Scripture says that we shouldn't worry, You know, that in everything should be prayer and supplication. We shouldn't be anxious. Why? Because if God is really that God that we know him to be, we're in, that, we're in those moments when we're at church or with other believers, we're worshipping or we're praising God or we're just not in our quiet time and God is just this amazing, wonderful God and we love him and then we suddenly go out and there's a problem and we forget God or we, we doubt that God can help us. You know, that really is an insult. And this is the, the challenge that God really lays down here that these Jews failed to enter into their inheritance. They were saved, they were delivered, but they didn't have the best that God could have had for them because they just didn't trust Him. And so they just did believe not. And God just treats that as sin. And He's listed there the sin. And then we go on and we see this. Comparison, not just with uh, with Moses, but with Aaron, of course, as a high priest. And then Jesus' priesthood is compared to that as being so much better and greater. Aaron's priesthood was this lineage that, uh, because your father was a Levite and related to to, uh, to Aaron, then you would, if you were the firstborn in the family, typically you would inherit that. But he's saying Jesus' inheritance was something different. Jesus' role as a high priest was given to him specifically by God, just as was that of Melchizedek. We looked at some of the wonderful comparisons there that Melchizedek was this king and a priest. Of course, for the Levites, they would serve as priests, but they would never be kings. And likewise, the the kings typically uh, who were of the tribe of Judah, they would never be able to work in the office of priest because that was reserved for the Levitical line. But Jesus, just as Melchizedek was, comes as a king and a priest Interesting that character Melchizedek was the king and priest of Jerusalem, and we've looked already. That historically, we now got this, this evidence to tell us that there was a line of God-fearing, God-believing kings and priests ruling and reigning in Jerusalem for a period of a thousand years prior to. The time of Israel moving back into the land. Of course, at the end of that period, uh, the Jebusites take over Jerusalem, and they're the ones that David then uh, wrests control from as he takes Jerusalem, and it becomes the the kind of the city of David. And so on. And of course, it's the same city, therefore, that Jesus will also rule and reign from. Interestingly, for a period of thousand years, as we're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, that millennial reign of Christ that is yet to come. These models, these patterns, amazingly, sometimes people, you know, have this real issue with end times and understanding what's coming. And yet we have models and types all the way through scripture to show us what's going to come. You know, we're told in Scripture that God does nothing and yet, he, unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. So nothing that's coming is stuff that's going to be brand new that nobody knew about. It's stuff that we should understand that we should know. And then, again, we get this comparison, of course, with Joshua. We've seen that already. Joshua was the one who uh, led and delivered the people in, and uh, brought them across the Jordan uh, safely and so on, but led them uh, through the battles and so on they, they had. And then the last chapter last week, uh, we were looking once again of the, um, the summary. It says, chapter 8 begins now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. And it really speaks about that Jesus is this high priest. He's set at the right hand of God. He's not not ministering on earth. It's not an earthly uh, work. Last week, the focus very much was on Jesus and his role, his position, and so on. And then this week, we're going to go on in chapter 9 now to look at the tabernacle. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. So let's uh, just bow our hearts. Let's just commit this time to the Lord and ask him to open our understanding and bless us. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to meet together. Uh, Father, we do pray for your spirit to illuminate these things to us. Once again, your word reminds us that the natural man can't receive the things of the spirit of God, nor can he know them because they're foolishness to him. And so Lord, we recognize that these things are not to be understood just from an intellectual capacity. It's not just knowledge. Lord, we need to see the spiritual truths in the things that we read. And Father, we pray that you would apply them to our lives, that we, that we would see how these things should challenge us and affect the way we walk with you. Lord, you've called us to walk by faith, Uh, Lord, not by the things that we see with our eyes, not by the natural things. And so this morning, Father, help us to grow a little more. Uh, Lord, help us to see you a little more clearly, to love you more. and Lord, just to reject the things of this world. So we give you this time, Lord, minister to our hearts now. Lord, just take my words, my thoughts, and let your spirit just move amongst us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, read through the chapter. I'm going to do as uh, we've been doing, just going through uh, this uh, translation, this paraphrase effectively, uh, the Jewish New Testament. Uh, And as I said already, not everything's 100% into the way they translated it, but it's just helpful. And I would encourage you with all translations of the Bible, um, be aware that, that many of them, most of them these days, they're commentaries. And as a commentary, that can be helpful, um, but just be a little bit cautious. You need to you need to have a good uh, translation uh, to base things on to refer back to. So, but let's just read through chapter nine. If you read through in your Bibles, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll come back and we'll go verse by verse through this study. Now, the first covenant had both regulations for worship and a holy place here on earth. A tent was set up, the outer one which was called the holy place, and in it were the menorah the table and the bread of the presence. And behind the second veil was a tent called the Holiest Place, which had the golden altar for burning incense and the Ark of the Covenant entirely covered with gold. In the Ark were the gold jar containing manna, Aaron's rod that sprouted, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above it were the Kruvim, the angels, representing the Shekinah casting their shadow on the lid of the ark. But now is not the time to discuss these things in detail. With things so arranged, the Kohim, or the high priest, go into the outer tent all the time to discharge their duties. But only the high priest, the, Koh, the Kohen Haggadal, enters into the inner one, and he goes in only once a year, and he must always bring blood, which he offers both for himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. By this arrangement, the Ruech Chodesh, the Holy Spirit, showed that so long as the first tent has standing, the way into the holiest place was still closed. This symbolizes the present age and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be brought to the goal by the gifts and the sacrifices he offers. For they involve only food and drink and various ceremonial washings, regulations concerning the outward life imposed until the time for God to reshape the whole structure. But when the Messiah appeared as Kohen Gadal, the high priest of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is not of this created world, he entered the holiest place once and for all. And he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus setting people free forever. For if sprinkling ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer restores their outward purity, well then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death, so that we can serve the living God. It is because of this death that He is the mediator of the new covenant or of the will. Because a, a death has occurred which sets people free from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise, a promised eternal inheritance. For when there is a will, there must by necessity be produced evidence of its maker's death, since the will goes into effect only upon death. It never has false while its maker is alive. This is why the first covenant too was inaugurated with blood. After Moses had proclaimed every command of the Torah to the people, he took the blood of calves with some water and used scarlet wool and, uh, scarlet wool and hyssop to sprinkle both the scroll itself and the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God had ordained for you. Likewise, he sprinkled... With the blood, both the tent and the things used in its ceremonies. In fact, according to the Torah, almost all, almost everything is purified with blood. Indeed, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this is how the copies of the heavenly things had to be purified. But the heavenly things themselves require better sacrifices than these, for the Messiah has entered the holiest place, which is not man-made and merely a copy of the true one, but in, into heaven itself in order to appear now on our behalf in the very presence of God. Further, he did not enter heaven to offer himself over and over again like the, Kohen Hagdell, like the high priest who enters the holiest place year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have to suffer death many times from the founding of the universe on. But as it is, he has appeared once at the end of the ages in order to do away with sin through the sacrifice of himself. Just as human beings have to die once, but after this comes judgment, so also in the sire, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, let's uh, go back then and uh, just go verse by verse through this and uh, see what the Lord shows us. So, we build on uh, from the, the previous verse. Uh, it speaks to verse 13 of chapter 8, uh, in that he says, A new covenant he has made the first old. The point that's made is simply, the fact that we're speaking about a new covenant means there must be an old covenant. The fact that there's a new one means there's an old one. And the old one, because it's old, by very definition, by the nature of it, it's waxing away, it's vanishing, it's it's just growing to the point of being obsolete now. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's made the law obsolete because something better has come in. The law, the intention of the law is to provide a way of making us right with God. But of course, God knew ahead of time that the law could never actually accomplish that goal. It could set the standard, but it had no power to change us. And that's where it was weak. That's why it was unprofitable, as we looked last time. So verse 1 of chapter 9, Then, verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So he's saying that the first covenant, the law, there was a whole bunch of stuff that went along with it. There was rules and there was things that they had to follow, the priest had to follow and so on, uh, and this divine service that the priest had to, f- to fulfill the roles they'd been given. And this worldly sanctuary, or the tent that was uh, built in the wilderness, again, back in the book of Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, not in in the Sinai Peninsula, that's a, a, uh, just a bad, bad uh, um, uh, error that's creeped in uh, through, through, actually from her, Constantine's mother, Helena. Um, she was out one day, she saw a mountain and went, oh, that, that will do, we'll call it Sinai. And everyone went, oh, okay, that's Mount Sinai. It's not, Mount is in Arabia, Paul says that in Galatians. Uh, it's in today, what we refer to as Saudi Arabia. Mountains there, there's abundant evidence that the children of Israel camped there, and so on. And while they were there, when Moses is up that mountain, He receives from the Lord these very, very detailed instructions, as I think we mentioned last time. If you go from uh, Exodus 25, really, through to the end of the book of Exodus, You know, 15 or so chapters, you've got a little bit in the middle about the golden calf. Uh, But the rest of it's all details about the tabernacle and the clothing for the priests and how they were to go about offering these sacrifices, which are then detailed in the book of Leviticus. But the building of the tabernacle is the most detailed subject in the entire Bible. There's more information about that than any other single subject, which must mean it's important, don't you think? God wouldn't just give it to us, and, you know, just for the sake of it. Everything we have in Scripture, we're already told, is there for our learning. We're going to talk about some of those things a little bit this morning. Verse 2, for there was a tabernacle made. And is the first wherein uh, was, sorry, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, the first wherein was the, the, the candlestick. You no, know, i saying the first because, of course, there was the tabernacle that Moses had later that tabernacle, as it's brought into the Promised Land, if you remember, they traveled through the wilderness. Uh, as God moved, they had that pillar of uh, fire by night and the cloud by day. And whenever the cloud or the pillar moved, they would pack everything up. They would move to wherever it stopped. And then they'd set up camp and they'd stay there. Eventually, they cross over into the the land of Israel, or the land of Canaan, as it was known at the time. And of course, God grants them victory. The tabernacle comes to reside in a place called Shiloh. It's where Eli ministered, uh, and so on. But eventually, when the the ark was taken, uh, the the whole thing becomes, effectively, uh, ruins. And it's not until the time of David that David wants to bring the tabernacle up to Jerusalem. Because he's just built his own house, if you remember the scriptures. And, And David says, you know, one day he's just pondering this, and he says, hang on, I've got this lovely house. But, you know, God's out there dwelling in a tent, effectively. And he said, this isn't right. So he has this idea to build a temple. And, of course, uh, the, the prophet Nathan, I believe it's Nathan, uh, or it Gad, one of the two, forgive me, one of the, one of the others. Uh, they, 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 they say, yeah, go go, do it. And on the way out, God says, you probably should have checked with me first, but I don't want David to do it because David shed a lot of blood. But his son can do it. So David then gets all the plans together for the uh, the temple and gets everything ready even all the construction bits ready and everything else, so that when Solomon and his son comes to the throne, Solomon is the one who then, in this six-year period of time, build this absolutely incredible, breathtakingly beautiful temple in Jerusalem, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. So much it was overlaid with gold and so on. And so the tabernacle shifts from Shiloh to Jerusalem, and that's where it remains. So that, that reference there, for, there was a tabernacle made. The first, the first one it's speaking of is the one in the wilderness, and of course, later in the temple, there was all these things as well. But now we're going to be told about the things that were in the tabernacle. Okay, The first thing that's mentioned, where was the candlestick? Not the best of translations. Really, lampstand is a better um, term than that, because they weren't candles, as we think of candles today. Um, they were lampstands. And the difference, of course, is that with a lampstand, you have an oil dish on the top, and that's the the fuel, as it were, and then it's lit, and the the lampstand simply bears of the light, and that's exactly what we, in Revelation we're told to churches that we are, as it were, that lampstand. This menorah, I'm sure you've all seen pictures of this menorah, these seven, seven branches, or it's kind of the, the main column, and then there's six branches coming off. So you've got seven uh, lights that are on top of this menorah, um, and in the Old Testament, fascinating as it is, uh, we have so much detail about these things, but they all point forward to other things. The, the menorah itself was made out of one, be, one piece of solid gold. It was beaten. Uh, it, it's kind of incredible um, workmanship uh, in this thing. Um, one of the, the interesting things regarding the lampstand, the lampstand itself, uh, apparently it weighed somewhere between uh, 75 to 120 pounds in weight. It, it was large. I mean, it was you know, head height kind of thing, or possibly even bigger than that. Interestingly enough obviously the light comes from this thing to illuminate but the fuel as again is the oil. oil of course is symbolic of the holy spirit and in revelation 120 we're told there that it's symbolic of the church the candlestick also no, the lampstand is symbolic of the church and again it's interesting how the church is one piece just as the menorah was one piece so the church is one body we are also to bear light the light that we bear the fuel for that light is the holy spirit and the lampstand itself was formed by beating this gold into shape. And how's the church formed? Well, largely through the trials and the persecutions and the challenges and so on that we face. It's been said many times that the, uh, the seed of the church was the blood of the martyrs. You know, the church became strong and becomes stronger when it's persecuted. It's interesting, as Bob was sharing earlier about the church in China, You know, huge number of Christians in that country. And yet, so much persecution. But it's often the case. Sadly, in in the way things are for us in the Western world, we have so much freedom and liberty that actually we get so complacent. Sometimes we don't value and appreciate just how incredible our faith is and our relationship with God, the freedom we have, the opportunity to meet together, to read his word and study his word. In other places in the world, we see incredible growth. Some of you may remember Pastor Scott Gallatin was with us a little while ago from uh, America. Uh, They've just been out in Israel um, for the last couple of weeks. But uh, before he went, he had uh, somebody speaking at his church uh, just outside, or in New York State in America, um, who's had a ministry going around various places, Russia and various North African places, um, and just speaking about how many Muslims are coming to the Lord. Just just a great harvest of souls coming in. It's lovely to hear these things. You know, sometimes we, we kind of sit in our own little bubble, our own little world, and we don't see all the things that God's doing. But God is really working. And there's people being saved everywhere. So, again, the church, just like this menorah, that's one one piece of this beaten gold. It's a lovely picture uh, that's painted for us. And so on. So, first of all, then, is the, the, the lampstand. Uh, and then the table and the showbread. Okay, so uh, we've got a couple of things here. Uh, firstly, we've got the, um, the table itself and then the bread that was put upon this table. Uh, again, it was a lovely, uh, intricate table with various levels on it. Um, you may have seen pictures. If you're not, just Google it. There's plenty of pictures you can see of what this actually looked like. Um, and there would typically be 12 loaves. Those loaves had to be replaced once a week. Uh, and each loaf was representative of the children of Israel. Uh, All of these things, uh, again, they speak of, of something regarding, um, the, regarding God, God's character, His attributes, and so on. Um, the lampstand typically speaks, I mean, commentators will tell us it speaks of the testimony of God, which again is so interesting with regards to the church, because we are to be that testimony, that walking testimony to God. Um, the, the table of showbread represents fellowship with God. And then the third verse we go on in. Uh, and after the second veil, okay, then we get into the, the Holy of Holies now, this 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 box. The, typically the, the tabernacle was a bit about, they reckon, about 150 feet by 75 feet, uh, this rectangular um, tent, effectively. Um, and then inside, uh, 15 by 15, you'd have the dimensions. Uh, and by the way, the dimensions for the tabernacle are just a smaller version of what we then have with the temple. The temple is the same thing, but it was just double the size. And the same dimensions are the same scaled up when we look at the New Jerusalem. It's very interesting. The New Jerusalem is just like a great big, supersized Holy of Holies, where again the Lord is in the center. just a wonderful picture when you start to look at those things together. So again, we talked about this, this second veil. So there was this, this area as you went into the tabernacle where the priests would typically go regularly. There'd be daily sacrifices they'd have to offer and so on. You go to the book of Leviticus, you start at the beginning of chapter one and we're given five specific offerings for sin. Some of them are for, for willful sin. Some of them are for sins of ignorance and so on. Some of them require um, blood to be offered. Other ones are, are grain offerings and so on. Uh, but all of those things, they all look t- forward to, and they speak of Jesus in one way or another. It's, uh, Leviticus is an amazing book. It's not an easy book to read, but it's an amazing book to study. There's actually a number of Bible commentators that will tell you that they think Leviticus is their favorite book of all. And actually, you read through Leviticus. In fact, I, I've recently started with the meter. We've just been starting going through it. And uh, we were commenting on how horrible it is. Speaks lots about blood and animals being you know killed and you know wringing the necks of birds and you know pouring their blood out and, and the things you have to do to the animals, you take all their innards out and all those kind of things. You know, it's not kind of pleasant, but that's the point. It's not supposed to be pleasant because it's dealing with sin. Yeah. And it's there to help us realise how horrible sin is to God. And actually as you read through it, you just start to get a big picture of God's grace and God's mercy. Spurgeon loved the Book of Leviticus. J. Vernon McGee, I think, is another Bible commentator um, that just said how much he loved uh, the Book of Leviticus uh, because of what it, it gives us. And again, these sacrifices that were done on daily in the, the tabernacle uh, are all detailed in the Book of Leviticus. And of course, in the, the outer part of the, the, the tabernacle itself, there was, of course, the, there was a fence around the outside. There was the, the outer court, and then you'd go into the tabernacle proper. And in the tabernacle, then you to the Holy of Holies, this bit. But the, the Holy of Holies was, was separated off by this veil, this thick curtain that was there. But the, the high priest was only allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year. Okay, it was so, so holy, so separate, so special. Interestingly enough, we're also just told, let's throw this in this point, um, verse 3 again, and after the second veil, was the, the, uh, the tabernacle was the, called the holiest of all, uh, which had the golden sense and the ark of the covenant over, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So just quickly, in, inside, behind the veil, there was this ark that had been built, this box. Again, uh, inside that was manna, that, that food that God had provided in the wilderness. Back in Exodus 18, we get the details of that. They really spoke of God's ability to provide for them. Then there was Aaron's rod that had buddied, if you remember. That had also been put in there. Again, that was back in number 16. We have more information about that. But that was the same thing. If you remember that Aaron, when he went before Pharaoh the first time, he threw his rod down, it becomes a serpent, and the magicians do the same, but Aaron's rod eats up their rod. But he speaks very much of God's calling. So we have the manna, which speaks about God's provision, Aaron's rod about God's calling on them, and then finally the, the tables, the, the, um, the, the tablets of stone. But these tablets contained the, the summary of the law, the Ten Commandments as we have them. And so these things were in the Ark, and the Ark itself was overlaid with gold. On top of the the Ark, uh, we'll, we go into the the next verse, uh, and over at the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly, or, or we don't have time to talk about that. And it's one another one of those, oh, I wish we had time. Remember there was a little comment about Melchizedek? It's like, I want to tell you loads about Melchizedek, but you're not ready for it, so I'm not going to. And we, we kind of sneakily had a little look about what may have been the idea Uh behind if it was Paul that was alluding to these things, what he might have intended to say. Uh, we're going to just talk a little bit about the mercy seat in a while. But these, these angels or these uh, images of angels, these cherubim, uh, over the top of the mercy seat with their, their wings effectively reaching over the top. The important thing to note is that the mercy seat was exactly that. It was a seat. Yes, it functioned as a lid on top of the ark, but it was a seat. Or In a moment we'll come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So, coming back to this holy place then. This is separated off from the rest of the tabernacle and the high priest once a year could go in. Now, because of the the situation that you were going in there to see the Shekinah glory of God dwelling above the mercy seat. Just an incredible honor and a privilege for the priest that could go in and see that. By the way, I'm just going to interrupt myself. Hold those thoughts because we're coming back straight there in a moment. But just the Shekinah glory. You now Go back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember after Adam and Eve transgressed, they sinned, they transgressed, they cross a line, they sin. they did it willfully. After that happens, they recognize they're naked. It wasn't that suddenly they became aware they weren't wearing clothes. They knew that before. Something had changed and they'd lost that covering that God had placed upon them. That's the, the real issue. That's why... You know, we all feel better with, with covering. It's a protection thing as much as anything else. You know, And that's a natural thing. See, originally Adam and Eve were covered, protected with the glory of God. But as a result of their sin, that covering was removed and they recognized their nakedness, their vulnerability. Now, With the the Shekinah glory, we see this through the Old Testament. We see it particularly here and in the tabernacle sorry, in the temple. If you remember when the temple is actually built, it's overwhelming because the the, the glory of God is so great, so uh, majestic that the priests have to stop ministering. They have to get out of the tabernacle or the temple as it's built. And it's all recorded in Chronicles for us, the details of that. How, when they'd finished it, God's presence was just overwhelming. But later, we get into the time of Ezekiel, and because the nation had abandoned God, that Shekinah glory lifts and goes up in a cloud. It comes off. That, that, That presence of God in the midst of his people is removed. It's interesting. But you know, you and I have this awesome, awesome privilege that we get that Shekinah glory. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit, who comes and dwells, not outside, but inside. That's staggering. This, this, this situation where the priest would go in once a year, I mean, they must have been, you know, I mean, goosebumps don't, don't quite cut it, but you know, just the idea of going into this place to see the glory, the presence of God. And yet you and I, every morning we wake, we can know and walk with the Holy Spirit. It really is quite a, a staggering thing. So, the other thing, of course, that the priest, because they, they were worried, that what happens if the, if the priest is in there and he faints or he dies or something happens? So they used to tie some rope around the priest's leg, and if he was in there for too long, they would just drag him out. Uh, of course, you know. They did, the, now, we get a little glimpse of that in the New Testament, of course, with uh, Zacharias, with John the Baptist's dad. Uh, it was his turn to go in and minister on that particular day as he goes in, and that's where this angel speaks to him and says, you're going to have a son, and... He goes, oh, "I don't believe you and because of that he can't speak for uh, the duration of the pregnancy until John is finally born. Um, but uh, yeah, so these, these priests would do that year after year, but they would only do it once a year, and they'd go in on Yom Kippur the day of atonement, and they'd offer sacrifice for not only their sins, but for the sins of the whole nation. There are other sacrifices that were done on a daily basis, and so on. And other things that, again, you read through uh, Leviticus, particularly, gives you all the details of those things. We haven't got the time; I'm going to force you to go into all of that this morning. Um, but again, all of these things, the tabernacle speaks of Jesus. We're going to build up from there in a moment. But just want to, just a couple of comments um, that we've got. The other thing that was mentioned there uh, in verse um, four was the golden censer. Now it's interesting because here in Hebrews. It's mentioned that the golden censer is inside the holy of holies. Okay, or this is the incense altar. But if you do a study, you go through and look at um, uh, Exodus, you'll find the incense altar was actually the outside of the veil. Now, there's no errors in Scripture, so why is it that that's the case? Now, there's there's all sorts of ideas that have been put forward and and suggested as to why. One of the most plausible is that at some point when this was set up after various moves or maybe when the temple was built, the incense altar was actually put in the wrong place and it was left on the other side of the curtain. And I guess it was one of those things that once it's it's built, you know, the risk of of being killed if you went in there, nobody's going to go in and recover it. So you just got left there. Certainly, you know, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that's where at that time it was located. Now, a number of commentators have talked about this, um, but the, the, the strong possibility is that it was simply at that point left the wrong side of the curtain. But how interesting that God still works through and ministers even when we get things wrong. In, in terms of some of the details and so on, it just speaks of God's grace. But, I mean, I'll let you dig out the commentaries if you want to find more on that. But there's just interesting thoughts that have been put forward. Um, but there was two altars. There was the main altar, uh, that was outside, uh, the actual tabernacle itself where the offerings were brought and so on. They put on that altar. And then there was the incense altar that was inside again, just to burn incense. It was a sweet savor, this sweet fragrance to the Lord inside. Again, interesting kind of That also in his own way speaks of the church, speaks of us. We're supposed to be that sweet savor to the Lord and so on. Um, the bronze altar is the one that was outside. Uh, it speaks of judgment, bronze speaking of judgment. Uh, the also outside was the, the laver. Uh, the laver was this great big bath, effectively. It was made from the, the mirrors uh, that they brought out of Egypt. They melted them all down and they made this laver. And the priests typically would wash in the laver before they went into the holy place. Um, it's interesting that, that, again, the laver is very much representative of the word of God. And the fact that it's made out of mirrors is very poignant because just as, as you got into this bath, it would have been kind of this reflection, uh, this very bright material. Um, well, the Word of God's just like that. You know, we look at the Word of God and we see a reflection. We see, we see ourselves as we really are. We can't hide anything. So these are the various parts. Again, the Ark of the Covenant is representing the law of God, the mercy seat, speaks of the authority of God, the table of as we said already, speaks of fellowship with God. The lampstand regarding the testimony of God. Uh, The bronze altar, the judgment of God. And the incense altar really speaks about the prayers of the saints being offered up and lifted up. Again, I see a reference to that in Revelation. And then the laver, which is speaking again of the word of God and of cleansing. Again, we're we're to be washed with the water of the word and so on. Okay, let's uh, let's pick up and move on. So, verse 6 goes on. now let's just throw in very quickly here because I mentioned about the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat itself, as already mentioned, was a seat, or another way of putting it was a throne. Okay. The ark itself was made with wood overlaid with gold, but the, seat, the mercy seat was made of solid gold. Now that means that if over a long period of time the ark itself may, possibly could, decay because of the wood, the mercy seat wouldn't. Okay? There's a strong possibility that mercy seat still exists somewhere. And just to, some of you are already familiar with the, the conjecture, the idea, but we know that just after Jesus had been crucified, the Queen of Ethiopia had sent up her treasurer, the one who's was in charge of all the finances and everything else for, for, for her, for the nation. Comes up to Jerusalem, seemingly to, to offer a gift. Why? Because in the book of Isaiah we're told very clearly that when the Messiah comes, Ethiopia will bring a present to the Lord. Now, we don't know what that is specifically, but that treasurer came up from Ethiopia because he heard the Messiah had come. And he goes back a little bit confused as to, okay, so what was all this about? And if you remember, Philip then meets this individual, witnesses to him, explains what Isaiah 53 is all about, that Jesus had to come the first time to suffer. The second time he comes will be to rule and reign. And that, that Ethiopian eunuch goes back, going, oh, I get it. Okay, so it was just the wrong time. And what gift was he going to bring? Well, there's a lot of really good conjecture to suggest that the Ark of the Covenant actually got taken down and even to this day resides in Ethiopia. Now, If that's the case, it may well be that the present they were looking to bring back was the mercy seat. And that will be the throne that Jesus will sit and rule and reign on through the millennial reign, which is just fascinating. I mean, again, I'll let you dig into that. There's interesting uh, articles and studies and things on that. But the other wonderful thing about the mercy seat Again, the high priest, once a year, would go in. this blood would be sprinkled on it. And these cherubim would sit either end. And we see another beautiful example or the fulfillment of that, in a sense. Ultimately, we're going to talk about what Jesus did in a moment. But in the New Testament, if you remember, on the morning of the resurrection, as the disciples arrive at the tomb, they walk in, and what do they see? They see two angels either side of this area, effectively not much bigger than the the Ark of the Covenant. These two angels sat there, infected with blood, blood sprinkled on that area. It is a lovely kind of fulfillment in the sense of, of what that, that picture was speaking of, the blood of Christ that was ultimately shed. And of course, every offering, every sacrifice once a year that had been done for the children of Israel was all looking forward to that ultimate fulfillment. So, verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God just talked about this. All, all these things were set up as, as, as been directed by God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. In other words, every time he went, he had to take blood. God wasn't going to accept anything else. It's a little bit like to go back to the Cain and Abel situation. Cain, if you remember, decides to offer the work of his hands. Abel, yeah, yeah he was a shepherd. That's not the point. The point was he knew that if he was going to go to God. He had to go and offer blood. Blood is that which brings atonement. And so Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's is rejected. It wasn't because Cain hadn't tried really hard. It was the point that he, regardless of whether he tried really hard, it was not based upon his ability. It was based upon the shedding of blood. And so the high priest once a year goes in, again, taking blood, uh, which he offered for himself. I mean, he, he was also a sinner. And for the heirs of his people. There must have been an element where every time the high priest went in, knowing that he was himself as a sinner, knowing that he was offering sins of the people, you're going before a just, holy, righteous God. There must have been an element of, will I come out alive? And every time they, they came out, the high priest, there must have been a bit of rejoicing in the camp that, that we've been offering this sacrifice, that he's been accepted of God. Phew, atonement's been made for us. We're okay. But that was every year. I mean, maybe they were just getting a little bit nervous every year leading up to this. Verse 8 goes on and says, um, the Holy Ghost thus signifying that, the, uh, sorry, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. You know, the high priest went in as a sinner. That, that door wasn't open, that veil hadn't been torn, and yet we know later. As Jesus is crucified, that veil was torn from top to bottom. I forget the exact dimensions now, but Josephus records how thick that veil was. And it was thick. I mean, it was really, really thick. And you start to understand why the priests were so concerned when this veil tears from top to bottom. And of course, what does it signify? It signifies that now because of Christ's blood being shed, that veil can be torn. And there is a way now into the presence of God himself. And then verse 9 tells us, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. See, the problem was that those offerings, although they would make atonement, they could never purge your conscience. That guilt ultimately was still there. You still knew you'd committed sins. You knew that you'd rebelled against God and your heart and your mind and so on. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all those things the scripture speaks of. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. They had to do all of those things, but they never solved the real problem. But then verse 11, but Christ being come. Uh, there's this two... Of these expressions in scripture, one in Ephesians, which speaks about the fact that we were lost, we were completely alienated from God. But then it says, But God, that's a verse to underline. And then this one, Hebrews 9, verse 11, But Christ, but those two things. Yeah, let me just give you that Hebrews, the, the Ephesians one, if you want to make note of it, because it really is just as these are game changers for all of us in Ephesians. And it is verse, I think it's chapter 2, am I right? Yeah, chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, it just speaks about, uh, and you, as he quickened, who were dead in trespassing sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, and it goes on. It speaks about how, you know, we were uh, by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, oh, I, I praise God that that verse is there. Because there was no other way, unless God intervened. And then the remedy, the solution that God uses, Hebrews 9 verse 11, but Christ. You see, all these other attempts to get right with God, to to address the sin problem, they don't work. But Christ, being a high priest of good things to come, speaking of all the promises that are yet ahead, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, and we're going to go in a second and realize that that tabernacle was just a model of what's already in heaven. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained, and if you want to mark this in your Bible, please do so, eternal redemption for us. Well, there's, there's some real gems in the book of Hebrews. But we're going to read a number of eternals as we go through this. Okay, eternal redemption. That means it's forever. Notice who obtained it. It wasn't you. It was Jesus. Jesus obtained it. And Jesus is the one, effectively, who tells us that this is eternal redemption. That means if it's eternal, it it can't be lost. It can't be forfeited. We can't walk out of this because we didn't have anything about bringing it to pass in the first place. And it says, for if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, and of course that's a, a throwback to the things that we read about, particularly in Leviticus, and the sacrifices. Uh, okay, it would, it would make a temporary covering for the sin, but it doesn't deal with the inward. You know, some of those things that were done under the law, they were done on the basis of, of people's testimony, on what they actually said. Now, the truth of the matter ultimately lay lay with God because people didn't know uh, the details, you know, what was going on. The point is that the conscience could be saying one thing where the outward be saying something different. It doesn't solve that conscience problem. Verse 14, but how much more shall the blood of Christ who through, now notice again, the eternal spirit. So we've got eternal redemption. We've got eternal spirit. And by the way, John tells us In his gospel, recording Jesus' words, the Holy Spirit is given to us forever. Okay, That's the the privilege the church has. The Holy Spirit is given to us forever. We can't lose or forfeit. Saul forfeited and lost the Holy Spirit, King Saul in the Old Testament. David cried out after his transgression with Bathsheba, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51. But no, no, we have this eternal spirit. So, his, his spirit. Uh, Where wait, we? Sorry, we're just my my uh, So verse 14. So how much more we'll shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot. He was sinless when he went in. He can purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, just, just very, very quickly, let me just, the, the whole issue of dead works, it was referred to back in Hebrews chapter five as well. Uh, sorry, chapter six, beginning of chapter six, of the things that we should understand. It's about repentance from dead works. Dead works are everything that you have ever done or tried to do to be right with God, when you've made an effort to get it right. That's dead works. It cannot make you right with God. Trying hard, making New Year's resolutions, making promises, making oaths, doing whatever you want to try and do is utterly pointless because you have not the ability to follow it through. Because we're told that in our flesh dwells no good thing. The only way of being pleasing to God just, you know, Leon, I might share those things you sent me, because they were really good. Leon was speaking about this whole, um, the, the idea of people being called good. And there was the, 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 the scripture, forgive me, oh, i am gonna put it in that email if you don't mind sharing, because it was so good. But about the idea that um, it speaks about those who um, will be saved eternally, and it speaks about them being good. And yet Jesus also said that no one is good. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, simply, the the only ones who are good are good because they are in Christ. And we are clothed with his righteousness. Okay, This is the whole issue of dead works. Dead works are just the things that you do. It's religion. It's stuff that you do that you think gives you some sort of credibility or standing with God. And and the world is full of various ways and methods and processes and religions and all sorts that will tell you that, that this is what makes God happy. None of that works. It's just trusting him. Go back to what we said earlier about the reason that the children of Israel, those those that rebelled or that didn't trust, they were not allowed to enter the promised land because they didn't trust. The difference is again the ones that trusted Joshua Caleb particularly, the two notable ones, they entered in because they trusted God. And that's how you enter into the promises of God. That's how you enter into the blessing. By trusting. By faith. By faith we are saved. Not of works, lest to we should boast. So It's very really clear. Scripture is so clear. These, these themes are just so... Uh, just flow throughout the whole of Scripture. So again, Jesus can purge our conscience from dead works. What does that mean? It's from the idea that we have to do something. Because our conscience says we're guilty, so we've got to try and solve the problem. Well, scripture says you can't. You have to come to Christ. You have to throw yourself... And his mercy and his grace. And of course, we know already, we've seen, he ever lives to make intercession for us. We're told back in 12, verse 25 of chapter 7, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him. That's the way, that's that's salvation. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. That is salvation. Verse 15, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, this new agreement, this, this, this deal that's been brokered effectively in the heavenly courts. Jesus is the the mediator, the go-between, the one that's made this possible. We're on one side, God's on the other, and Jesus is the mediator. And by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There we go, another Promise there, eternal inheritance. We've got eternal redemption, we've had eternal spirit, eternal inheritance. Again, if it's eternal, it's not something that's temporary, it's not something that could be forfeited, lost, or whatever. Because if it would if it could be, it wouldn't be eternal. It's the promise of eternal inheritance. You start to realise how secure we are in Christ. How the Jews each year had that little bit of apprehension when the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement. For us, it's done, it's completed. And there's no need to repeat it. It's all completed. Jesus cried out to tell us I paid in full. Great song, by the way, Sarah. This is Sarah's album. It's a song called "To Tell Us It's just lovely. It's just, you know, These ideas. Verse 16: For where a testament is, there must also be of necessity be the death of the testator. This is just a simple thing. If, if there's a will, the will only comes in force once. The person who's written the will has died. It's really, this is really the point of what it's saying here. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while a testator lives. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, so when he gave the law, what do we get after Exodus? We get Leviticus. And Leviticus tells us all the sacrifices. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. Now that's the type, that's the model. That's what Moses did, but he's speaking of something that was to come. And verse 22 tells us that almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Everything that was there has to be sanctified by blood. And if it actually, if there's no shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Why? Because God has decreed that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is intrinsic. It speaks of our life. The very first thing in the book of Genesis that's spoken of as being alive, I mean, we, we think of plants, but plants aren't alive in the sense that we're alive. They don't have life like we have life. The first thing that is alive Created on day five is that which has blood. Life and blood are inextricably in, linked together. And so that's why there has to be the shedding of blood. God, back in Genesis, as Adam and Eve sent, he inaugurates the very first blood sacrifices. he produces these skins for Adam and Eve to wear. Blood had to be shed for those skins to be given to them to give them that protection, that clothing we mentioned earlier. But the the blood had to be shed because effectively God says, well, you sinned, therefore you forfeited your life. But I will take the life of an innocent substitute in place of yours to atone for you. And of course it all looks forward to Jesus. You know, death is one of those things that we struggle with. It's very hard on any level. But you know, death was put in place by God as a way of making it possible for us to have new life. You know, by God bringing in death and making death the punishment for sins, he also made it possible that if somebody else could come and pay the penalty and die in our place, then we would have life. So although we look at death as a, as a, as a dreadful thing, and of course emotionally and everything else that it is, you go through it, it's very hard. But actually it's the mechanism that God has used to bring us life. Because he allowed his own son to die to pay for our sin. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices. So those sacrifices done in the tabernacle, they, they can affect the bigger picture. They didn't touch anything in heaven, in the heavenly realm. But Jesus, we're told in verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into the tabernacle or the temple. Well, he went into the temple, but I mean, he didn't go in there to offer a sacrifice in there in That sense And these things are just figures of the true, like okay, the real thing that's in heaven. So, Jesus effectively brings his own blood before the throne in heaven and his he sacrifice, symbolically, what is, has taken place. But it's heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And it is normal, yet, that he should offer himself often as the high priest entering into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now we all this, this great statement, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by sacrifice by the sacrifice of himself. This incredible plan that God had from before the ages, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, God knew that it was going to take the death of his own son. Still went through with this plan, still went through with creation, knowing what was going to happen with Adam and Eve. Knowing all that was going to happen as a result of it. But knowing that ultimately one day, as we read in Revelation 21-22, 20 20, there will be a people who will love God as their God and they will be his people. And we will walk together in unity willingly. God can't force anybody, or chooses not, to force anybody to serve him. It has to be a choice that we make. But now the way has been made open because of what Christ did. He did it once, he did it for all. It means that not only all of your sin to this moment has been covered, it's been paid for, but everything that you will do for the rest of your life, for the rest of your time on earth, it has all been paid for. In one sense, when we, we, we pray for forgiveness, truly that's already been accomplished. We, we, the, the sin has been paid for. What we have to do is simply confess that sin Knowing that as we told in first John, He's faithful to forgive us our sins. The price has been paid. It's, all, it's already done. But we do need to go to Him. If there is any issues, any iniquity in our hearts, we have to bring it before the throne, we have to lay it down. But the price has already been paid. You know, Jesus has already paid not only for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. It's an incredible statement because it means when people say about why would a God of love send people to hell? It doesn't. He's a God of love and he's paid the price for everybody not to go to hell. Their sins have already been paid for on the cross. But unless they put their trust in him and their faith in him, it won't help them. It won't avail them anything because they have to receive that new life. They have to receive by faith that which has been already paid for. You know, if I buy you a gift... It's utterly useless to you unless you willingly receive it. If you reject it, it, it doesn't become yours. It will only become yours if you receive it. And this is a very poor, crude example, but that's what God has done. He's given us his, his unbelievable gift. We all have to receive it. And so, verse uh, 27. Uh, and as it has appeared unto men, uh, so as it appeared, so as appointed, correction, unto men once to die, but after this, is the judgment. it's just creating a a basic statement. That's the way it is. It's really saying the point is that that Christ had to come and die to pay for our sin. Okay, In the same way that for all men it's appointed once to die and then the judgment. And, And that is the standard. Now there are some individuals, Lazarus died twice. Enoch, Elijah didn't die at all. Absolutely. Although Elijah... From what we read in Revelation, it would appear that he's going to come back and he is going to die, along with Moses, because they're going to be killed after three and a half years of witnessing in Jerusalem. Yes. But it's not a hard and fast rule. It's a basic principle that's laid down. That, that, generally speaking, we die once and then the judgment. It's been said before that if you, if you, um, uh, sorry, if you're, uh, where are we go with this? If you're born twice, you die once. If you're born once, you die twice. There we go. That's what's going with that. Think about it. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And That's the way this translated that earlier. Let me just read that verse again in here. So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that's the way it is. Jesus isn't coming back to deliver us from sin. That's been done. But he is going to come back and take us from from this realm to be with him in heaven. And we were singing earlier, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be when he comes back, when we're taken away from all the problems here. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are going to be saved from the presence of sin. We'll be taken out of this world completely and we'll be with the Lord in heaven. This us bow our Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning just to, to think on these things. Oh, Lord. Lord, each one of us maybe we are in different places in our own lives, our own walk. Uh, we just pray that you impress upon our hearts the things that you want each of us to understand and know. Lord, that we would grow as individuals, but also as a, as a fellowship of believers together, that we would continue to encourage each other in this wonderful faith we have. Oh Lord, we would be, again, mindful of what you have accomplished for us, And, Lord, that we wouldn't attempt to uh, live by dead works, but, Lord, we'd recognize that we have been delivered, set free. The work is all done. But out of response, Lord, may we live by faith, walking with you each day, seeking how we can please you, bless you, by living Godly lives. Lives that are worthy of the calling wherein we are called. Lord, we want to bring glory to Jesus. We want to say thank you to him. So, Father, please help us as we walk with you this week. And Lord, we ask again your protection upon us and our loved ones. Lord, keep us safe. But also, Lord, in this particular situation with these um, problems around us, Lord, with the coronavirus and everything else, Lord, give us opportunities to share with others the great hope we have. Lord, of our, our eternal redemption, our eternal inheritance, through the eternal spirit we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.